This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. On part three of Leaders in Product Security, Rohit Sethi, CEO at Security Compass, is joined by Laksh Ragavan. Laksh is the head of Product, Platform, and Enterprise Security at LinkedIn, where he's accountable for the security of the web and mobile products and the underlying platform that serves LinkedIn's 740 million members and customers. Prior to joining LinkedIn last fall, he spent the last 11 years at PayPal in various leadership roles and most recently as its head of security products development. Laksh has nearly 20 years of experience in information security and has provided consulting services to various Fortune 500 and financial services companies around the world. He is also the co-author of two books on the topic of secure and resilient software development. Laksh, let's get right into it. You have some interesting views on how to apply cross-disciplinary thinking into product security. What are those topics? Hey, Rohit. First off, thank you for the opportunity and thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, So everything I'm I'm going to be discussing in this podcast is my personal opinion from my personal experience over the last 20 years or so and from what I've read and learned from people not just in the security domain, but more importantly, in the non-security areas. Um, Security as is proto-science, it's not science yet, and product security more so, right? And so we're we're trying a bunch of different things. Uh, We have to embrace what works and discard what doesn't, like make it evidence-driven and so on and so forth. Um, There's already a good body of knowledge like BSIM or OpenSAM, for example. So most of our folks actually know what to do, um, but I really like to talk about how to do it. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain that said, um, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what for sure that just ain't so. Uh, I think that's very profound. And a couple of topics that I really wanna dive into today um, are behavioral science and systems thinking, probably with small detours on what that means to be a leader in general or a leader in, in, in security space. Okay, sounds good. So you had a unique insight 10 years ago that helped inf- was helped informed by behavioral science. Can you tell us more about it and what outcome it led to? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so this was around 9, 10 years ago. And um, at that time, we were in the process of trying to roll out a, a static analysis program. And we built a small video tutorial for a specific business unit that we're trying to pilot with. So we, we sent out the email and we obviously um, were looking at the click-through rates and it, and it was abysmal, right? And somebody in the team made a comment that maybe... The developers don't know what, how much of a time commitment it is. Uh, maybe it's half an hour, maybe it's one hour. They don't know. So maybe they are busy with stuff and probably that's why they're not clicking it. And so we just made, we kept the entire email text the same, but we added just a small change. Within brackets, we said three minutes, 22 seconds or something like that. And we repeated the experiment and the click-through rate was just through the roof. And it was really eye-opening for me, and it felt like a superpower. And ever since that, I just poured myself into behavioral science and embraced the spirit of experimentation. And um, you, like, you seriously have to factor in the human element of driving change within, within the organization. Um, 
for example, if you're building an AppSec scorecard or sending email alerts, weekly emails about, hey, how many security bugs you're open, you should seriously consider the power of peer pressure for all dashboards and reporting. Like once you send an email to managers that are peers and copy their director and one manager is in green and, and few of them are in red, that seriously drives up the competition and, and uh, you will start seeing the change. So for folks who are more interested, I'd really recommend the works of Richard Thaler, Amos Tversky and uh, Daniel Kahneman. It's interesting. It's almost like uh, it's almost like corporate gamification. It seems to have a pretty good motivating impact. Yeah. Uh, so you've had experience embedding security requirements into the software development process using automation. Talk about how you brought behavioral science to that process. Sure. Um, if you think about it, security teams' success lies in influencing the actions, roadmaps, goals of product development teams even though in reality, they have very little control over what they do. Like security teams are in a different organization, product development teams in a different organization. And so um, factoring in the human element is super critical. If you just track the maturity of how typically uh, this is done, you can you have like meetings between the security team and the product team. And after the review and email-based action items could be sent uh, the requirements from the security team are tracked in spreadsheets and then or it may be tracked by program managers and then or in ticketing systems that only the security team uses uh, but a, a fundamental breakthrough there would be to have a, a portal where um, developers can come and answer a series of questions and then it automatically generates the requirements at least most of it if not all of it and now how do you get them to actually go work on those? Um, and we all know the mantra that you gotta go where developers are, but if you really zoom out and think about it, it's, it's not about just that. It's about finding an effective means to make sure that functional and non-functional requirements are treated as equal citizens in your organization. So what that means is make sure that the requirements actually go to the place where developers are going day in and day out. It could be Rally, where the user stories are, or it could be Jira, and you got to place your security stories right there. And if you want to build security in, you got you to do that. And then kind of like once you start proving that, then the magic happens, right? Then the privacy team looks at it and says, hey, this is actually working well. Can I get on this train? Uh, then the legal and compliance folks may want to join you. And even sometimes like accessibility teams want to use the tool. And so you're really creating that powerful um, mechanism with which functional requirements and non-functional requirements can be made equal citizens in your org. Uh, and, and what that means could be different to different orgs. Every company is different, but you got to strive for that. Yeah, certainly something that we have seen as well. The going to where the developer is, is is absolutely critical and and you know minimizing the impact to to the development teams um, so that they can focus on delivering value to to the end customer. Now another discipline that you've mentioned you can learn from is systems thinking. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I want to start by an overview. Start with an overview of systems thinking by giving an example. This is something you can Google it. I, I, I'd highly recommend it. 
There's also a YouTube video about it. Uh, this is about Yellowstone wolves. Back in the day, like over a period of time, like the wolf population in Yellowstone National Park dwindled. And the land of the old faithful, as it's called, was not always as lush as it is today. Uh, just a couple decades ago, right, Yellowstone National Park was a victim of defoliation, erosion. It had an unbalanced ecosystem. Uh, plants were dwindling. That means that led to like soil erosion and the rivers would change courses, uh, creating havoc in the, in the overall ecosystem. And the people that were wanted, like that wanted to fix this, obviously had a bunch of lessons learned from from past experiments uh, from different states and countries. And so what they did was instead of solving these different problems separately, they took a systems thinking approach and they figured out that their best leverage point was to actually bring wolves back to the park. And so when they did that, pretty soon um, the elk population started going down. And it also changed the, their praise behavior. So other herbivores, they started to avoid the areas like valleys where um, they could be easily hunted by these predators. And as a result, the area just began to regenerate. And species such as birds, beavers, mice, bears, they all started to return. Plant life started to thrive again and riverbanks and erosion decreased significantly. And that really stabilized the riverbanks and made the rivers and streams change course. And so it's really intriguing. Now, how does this apply to um, security and, and a modern corporation? A large corporation uh, is no different from an ecological system. There are multiple factors at play. And we've heard about the concept of paired indicators, uh, where like in sales teams, they focus on the number of deals closed per week or month but they also weigh that against retention. And in the security world, we always talk about security versus velocity, but those pair indicators are really a narrow view, but a step in the right direction nonetheless. And so what you really wanna do is uh, factor in all of the components. Let's, if, let's, take, let's say you have, uh, if you take an organization, there are multiple departments. Like you have uh, SRE, you have security, you have product, you have engineering, marketing, finance, IT, and so on and so forth. Similarly, our government also has multiple departments. There's a Department of Homeland Security, Minister of Finance, there's, there's somebody who takes care of national forests, there's somebody who's responsible for irrigation and waterways. So hypothetically, let's say you are the Minister for Irrigation and Waterways, and uh, Let's assume there is a tribe living in a small village in near one of the rivers uh, in Yellowstone National Park, right? And uh, that tribe is, you know, petitioning you, saying that look, the, there are flash flood floods. It's there's a lot of unpredictability in the waters, and if things proceed the way they are today, we're not sure if our grandkids can live here. Can you do something about it, right? And as a minister, you have a budget and your responsibility is irrigation. And so the instinctive reaction is to build something there, like build a super strong reinforcement to prevent uh, the water from impacting their village. But if you, if you zoom out and think about it, you're only fixing the problem for that tribe, for that village. But what about all the other villages uh, in the state? 
And what about all the plants and the animals and the ecosystem around it? So in reality, no problem exists in isolation. And so there are no security problems and code quality problems and availability problems in organization. Um, a security problem is just your own perspective of one of its manifestations. There are many such problems. Uh, and so that when you have the different problems attracting each other, with, with, with each other, there is a technical term for it. It's called mess. And so you gotta, you gotta embrace complexity and try to manage, manage the mess. And this whole concept ties well into the title of your podcast, which is the balancing act, uh, except that I wanna clarify that you're not trying to balance two variables, but you're trying to balance a ton of variables that are separated not only in space, but also in time. Very interesting. Uh, I think mess is a good analogy. Everybody in security can appreciate that. Can you give us more examples of where this concept of systems thinking can be applied in product security? Oh, absolutely. So let me start out with a couple concepts and then I'll try to explain that with more examples. So the first concept um, that, that systems thinking teaches you is that don't try to improve part of a system in isolation. In most cases, it'll actually deteriorate the whole. And there's like rigorous mathematical proof for it in system sciences. Um, I don't wanna get into it in the interest of time, plus it's boring. Um, but I'll try to give you another analogy. So let's say you're trying to solve the problem of open source security, right? The first thing you gotta know is what components, what versions of what components are running where? And if I can just zoom out and just think about it in terms of overall vulnerability management or patch management, if patch management is broken, it's not in isolation. It's, it's, the reality might be that your asset management is also broken. Your config management is also broken. Your OS image management is broken. There's probably drift on your site, right? So if your asset management is not that good, it would be super tempting, like if you're, if you're trying to bootstrap a, a patch management program or a vulnerability, vulnerability management program to go build your own scanner. And hey, let's scan all the IPs. Let's figure out what, what boxes are here in each zone and build your own database and, and start work on it. But instead of doing that in isolation, if you can step back and look at how, I, how can I build um, capabilities of asset management at the company. And so uh, how, if you don't have a CMDB, then put that in place first. Start collaborating with SRE, uh, with developer experience team, framework teams, ID teams, all of your partners, and enrich that CMDB with the data and the metadata that you need from a security perspective. So when asset management is significantly improved, now that's laying a strong foundation and other things like monitoring, availability, capacity planning, all of that can now thrive based on that. So don't try to improve just yours, but think about the whole and see how we can all improve. And, and in many cases, in my experience, what I've seen is that security can be that rising tide that actually lifts all boats. It's really interesting. And that, that speaks to me as CEO of my company. When I hear things like that, it very much 
reminds me of a, a lot of the conversations we have and decisions we have when you're talking about the conditions for patch management or open source management and, and that kind of relaying back to asset management. And, and of course, then there's tie-ins to, first of all, like how are these departments budgeted? Do they have the correct allocation? Do they have the right people? So it's all very much uh, mixed together. And I find that people who think of it in this holistic perspective are, are the ones that um, achieve the most success. Absolutely. And let me actually talk about another concept from system thinking and provide another example. Um, so the concept here is that performance of a system is not the sum of the performance of its parts taken separately, but the product of its interactions. Uh, it may sound a little bit abstract, but let me just break it down with an example. So let's say you're trying to roll out a static analysis tool or a dynamic analysis tool. Typically, product security practitioners worry too much about the parts. They all want the best product in the market when doing an evaluation and when they're rolling out, but they don't really obsess or worry too much about the interactions. If I look back at my career, my biggest mistakes and regrets when rolling out you know, static analysis tools or dynamic analysis tools or things like that was not about picking the wrong product, but ignoring to obsess about the interactions. How is it gonna be seamlessly integrated into our CICD pipeline? How is it gonna be visible to our developers? How are they gonna interact with that? Um, what does it do to your build times? How, how does it impact your developer productivity and the downstream impact on code velocity and so on and so forth? And so you truly have to obsess about interactions and the resulting cascading series of impacts and behaviors over time. Very interesting. I guess thinking more holistically about product security now, talk to, talk to us about the maturity curve for a product security program. So somebody wants to start a product security program, how do they typically evolve? Where do they begin and where should they, they go to? Yeah. In my experience, the typical journey is from reactive to proactive. If I can give an analogy, uh, imagine a boat with a hole that's taking on water. And so you, once you get on the boat, you notice that it has a bunch of water. And so your immediate gut feel reaction would be to bail out the water. And you start doing that and it gets boring and tired pretty quickly because you haven't actually um, plugged the hole. And so then the whole material, so we, we, what this means in the security world is you're going to be focusing initially on pen testing and vulnerability management and driving remediation, but then you've got to focus on plugging the hole. And so you start thinking about, hey, how do we build security in? And then the program kind of slowly matures into, hey, let's engage early with the developers, let's shift left. Let's start providing them security requirements upfront. Let's do threat modeling. Let's start investing in secure frameworks and investing in security tools. And so even there's a maturity journey for each of those capabilities, starting from being manual and paper-based and then going into like full-blown automation. You need to cease dependence um, on inspection to achieve quality. Uh, eliminate the need for inspection on a mass basis by building quality into the product in the first place. Now that is a well-known adage in quality circles and security is no different. Make the right thing to do uh, from a security perspective, also the easy thing to do. Actually go further and make it the best way to do it. It's interesting because uh, 
this is something that we see, you know, a lot of people struggle. I say companies struggle with is going from reactive to proactive and aligning the company to want to go proactive and to think that it's uh, important enough to, to make investments. And in, in, in the world of product security, it's a little bit different maybe than enterprise security from a business case perspective. So just um, curious your thoughts on, do you see this? in your view, um, starting to affect the competitive dynamic of product companies in the future, where the ones that are primarily reactive and don't make that migration to be proactive will be less competitive uh, in the market than, than those who are willing to evolve on their journey? In the long run, security has gone from being an afterthought to being required like a necessary evil because there's compliance requirements to, I think we're at a point, inflection point, where security will become a key business enabler and, a com- and, and provide amazing competitive advantages over, over your competitors. So I think that's definitely the journey that we're on. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. So anything else that you want the audience to know, Laksh? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually have two different messages that I, w- that I wanna close the podcast with. The first one is, is more for security leaders um, and managers. And the second one is for security practitioners in general. So let me start with the first one. So we live in a world where, and we live in a time where all managers and leaders refer themselves as results-oriented or goals-driven. But there's also a different school of thought and management philosophy called management by means compared to management by outcomes. So let's say you're trying to drive up the coverage of your static analysis scanning or dynamic analysis scanning, or you're trying to improve the SLA of your security consulting team, right? Uh, My recommendation is don't focus on the outcomes. Don't focus on the SLAs. Your language as a leader matters a lot, irrespective of what level you are, whether you're a frontline manager doing daily standups or weekly sprint planning, um, or a director doing monthly deep dives or weekly ops reviews, or an SVP doing QTRs and QBRs. Um, in all of these forums, if you keep asking about where the team is in terms of meeting their goal, you got to understand where are you putting them psychologically? They live, they constantly live in the state of failure. They have not met the goal. Next week's review, they have not met the goal. And yet they have to gain that motivation somehow to get to that target at the end of the year. So instead, my recommendation is ask them to list down, hey, what are the improvement opportunities that are there? And what is their expected level of performance improvement that they can deliver? And how long is it gonna take for you to get that done? And every time you meet in all of the status meetings, don't talk about the goal, talk about what they've accomplished. That way you're giving them small victories and celebrations. And so you're getting the ball rolling on continuous improvement. And so in the example of the SLAs, let's say a certain class of a security consulting ticket takes five days to resolve typically. And so that's your SLA. And so you're not there yet. So you're trying to push your team. And by the end of the year, they have to get there. So if you focus on the means, they'll get to that exact goal by the end of this year. But if you focus on the means, then what you're going to, what they're going to do is you will start seeing magic. Not only they'll hit the five-day mark, 
but they'll continuously make improvements. Now the vast majority of the tickets will be closed within three days. Then they'll even start asking questions like, hey, does this even require human interaction? Let's actually automate this and make it even better for our customers. And so you're really getting the ball rolling on continuous improvement. So focus on means that actually delivers results way beyond your wildest imaginations when you start. And, and just to be clear, I'm not saying that don't set goals. Um, goals are important for sure. And the only thing that I, that I wanna say there is be thoughtful about what goals you set for the team. Uh, again, in an example, like for example, here in the Bay Area, car break-ins are a common problem for the last several years. And so let's say if you are a mayor of the city, you can ask your staff to, you have to, you have an option, right? You can say, go reduce the number of thefts. In that case, the, the resulting action would be more policing, CCTV cameras, stringent criminal punishment. What you end up with is overloaded prison system. But instead, if you set the goal for your staff to reduce the number of thieves, they're going to start thinking about better access to higher education, better uh, employment opportunities, um, and uh, livable wages and things like that. So overall, you're making the system better for everyone over time, and you're also uh, reaching your goals. And so that's the first message for leaders like when, who are managing security programs. The other one that I want to talk about is for all security practitioners. Um, there's a saying that goes something like this. Continuous improvement is not nearly as important as discontinuous improvement. Uh, this is true for not just your organization, but also the security industry in general. When it comes to treating a problem, there are actually four different ways. Um, absolution, resolution, solution, and dissolution. Most of us actually know the first three. Absolution, like if you're a parent and you have kids fighting, better not to intervene, just ignore them. That's absolution, the problem will just go away. Resolution is the use of experience, common sense, qualitative judgment. It's a clinical humanistic approach. We know what resolution is. And solution is about taking scientific research, experimentation, quantitative analysis, and all of the optimization techniques to solve a problem. That's solution. But there's actually another method of treating problems. That's called dissolution. I wish someone taught this to me when I was in school or college, but better late than never. So what is dissolution? How do you dissolve a problem? So dissolution is redesigning the system that has the problem or its environment in such a way to completely eliminate the problem. Let me give you a, a real life example. So several decades ago, back in the day, um, you had these match books and the striking surface was actually in the front. And there was a company that was like a major manufacturer of these matches. But the challenge was that once in a while, the spark would actually go hit on the other matches and the customer would have burn damage. And so they would sue the company. So this was becoming a problem for the company and the CEO. And so one fine day, a gentleman walked into the company and said, hey, I want to meet your CEO. And somehow we managed to get an appointment right away. 
And he's, he told the CEO, look, I know you have this problem. I can solve it without increasing your production costs. And the CEO was like, okay, tell me what it is. And he was like, no, I think I maybe um, cheated. So he lawyered up and they came to an agreement. And finally he, he disclosed the actual dissolution, not the solution. He said, instead of having the striking surface on the front, put it on the back until such time the, the solution that the company had was the warning that said close cover before striking. That's solution. Now, moving the striking surface completely to the back where it's impossible for the other matches to light up because of a spark. Now, that's the solution. Now, how does that apply to security? Let me give you a couple of examples. The first one is HTTP strict transport security. Like all of our efforts to educate our users, do awareness campaigns, uh, browser UI, UX enhancements, those green little lock symbols and SSL warnings, they are all solutions. They are like the close cover before striking uh, warning on the matchbooks. But somehow there was an aha moment that came that, and then we asked the question, what if there was no such thing as a hostile network? And that led to the development of HSTS. That's a truly discontinuous improvement. It took courage and to say that, look, I don't want to do this transaction with you as my customer, and I'm okay to lose the revenue in the process if we know that you're interacting with us over an insecure channel. And that led to breakthroughs with like certificate pinning and so on and so forth. Uh, that is now protecting attacks against citizens from nation state actors and things like that, which is really profound to see when, when those successes happen in real life. The other security example that I want to talk about is in the space of credential theft. Let's for a minute ignore the, the direct password breaches by attacking the server infrastructure, but mostly talking about phishing or malware. And so that continues to be a problem. And all of the typical approaches like having a security center on your site, trying to educate your users on security best practices, on password management to how to keep your system secure and so on and so forth, phishing awareness campaigns, SMS-based 2FA, and email security with DMARC. Um, all of that works, but only they deliver a certain uh, return on investment. They are all solutions. But one fine day, someone had the uh, foresight to ask, hey, with all of these efforts, we've been trying to protect the password, protect the password, protect the password. But how about we just completely kill passwords altogether? And so the FIDO Alliance was born, the specs uh, were written, OS manufacturers uh, came on board, browser vendors came on board. Uh, WebAuthn is now a, a formal standard now are we like we're well on our way to the world of passwordless? Uh, am I confident that passwords will eventually get killed in the long arc of time? Absolutely. And I'll close uh, with this final note. There was actually a, a video on my LinkedIn feed a couple of days ago. It was about a lady who lost her job because of COVID, and uh, she was living with her sister. And she used to work in an apartment for over 20 years and everyone there loved her. I'm sure most of the viewers might have already seen this video in, in their social media feeds, but it's really a moving story. So what the residents did was they got together 
and they gifted her a two-year lease on a penthouse of that high-end apartment. And so when you watch that video, it's super emotional, super moving. Um, but once you get through that phase, the quote that came to my mind um, was this quote from Anil Dash. And he said that most of what gets shared as heartwarming stories are usually temporary, small-scale responses to systemic failures. I wish we found it just as inspirational to make structural changes to unjust systems, but I don't know if our culture knows how to tell those stories. And so my hope here is that even if one of the listeners of this podcast found these uh, systems thinking stories inspirational, it'll, gen it'll make my day. And I hope to be the champion and advocate for all those unsung heroes who are extremely thoughtful about everything that they do and cheer for the people who never get credit for the problems that never happened. Once again, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Lakshan. I, I just say, I guarantee you, you will have that impact on at least one listener, if not more. I think the, some, some really good words of wisdom, um, really good to think from different perspectives. And also, I think that you probably make, will make some security people cry thinking about the day of not having passwords and, and being sure that's going to happen one day. That's uh, happy tears. So thank you very much. Uh, great insight as always. Pleasure talking to you. Um, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Lux. Awesome. Thanks, Ruth. Want to learn about what Security Compass has to offer? Check out securitycompass.com slash demo for a free demo today. Want more of the Balancing Act? Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts for more episodes.